by Joni Mitchell turns 50 years old this week. Half a century later, Mitchell's blue exists in that rarefied space beyond the influential or even the canonical. Canonical, writes the New York Times, and is the story of a restless young woman questioning everything, says the New York Times. Love, sex, happiness, independence, drugs, America, idealism, motherhood, and rock and roll. It came out when Joni Mitchell was 27. Various musicians have commented on the anniversary, 50th anniversary. Bonnie Raitt said, Blue just absolutely inspired and moved me. I just can't think of another piece of music that touches me in the same way. Graham Nash said at the time, I was repairing the house in Laurel Canyon. I was actually laying on, on the kitchen floor when I got, got a telegram from Joni Mitchell saying our affair was over officially. And she put it in a very interesting way. She said, if you squeeze sand in your hand, it'll run through your fingers. And I thought, hmm, got it. And that was that. And it took me a couple of years, but then I sat down, smoked a big one and really listened again to the record. She's an incredible songwriter. Joni Mitchell fan, anyone? Ellie, have you heard this album? Not the album, but no, they're just amazing. Who was the person you said was lying on the on the kitchen floor? Graham, the... Graham Nash. So I think they were in an affair. Oh. And he was lying on his floor in uh, Laurel Canyon. Yeah. Bless him. Yeah, no, I look, I know the music, and, and yes, of course, a fan. Beautiful. beautiful. Yeah, wonderful. J- James? Oh, uh, big fan, but um, I'm, I, I like Chalk Marks in the Rainstorm. Yes. That's, uh, that's where I discovered a secret place with Peter Gabriel. Um, yeah, not not popular amongst uh, the bros uh, yeah. back in early nineties, uh, Wellington. Uh, but shout out shout out to Mum for having the record anyway. Um, now uh, a bit of response regarding what you do. Uh, it's all very well for these panelists with the jobs that people love to talk about. But try saying you're a checkout op- operator at a dinner party. I, I have, sir. I respond. I have. Uh, you're looking at New New World Thorndon's finest checkout operator of the early two thousands, uh, and it's less annoying than comedian. Just take my word for it. <laughs> Uh, what do you do? Worst ever question to ask. I'm a happy stay-at-home mum, but also shouldn't be defined just by that. I'm a good person, way more important than a job. Another one here, Māori will always talk to Whakapapa first. Mahi is way down the list of who you are. Loving your responses this afternoon. Thank you. 2101 is the number to text. You can email thepanel at rnz.co.nz. Now, yesterday we talked about the issue of sideline abuse being a chief concern in the very real decline of grassroots rugby referees. The decline in rugby's match, rugby's match officials throughout the community game is seen as quite the issue when provincial unions and referee associations are scrambling to appoint referees to fixtures every week. And Ian Dallas, the Wellington Rugby Referees Chairman for 21 years, he was on the programme, he said that one person who deserves a very special mention is a Wellington referee who is still refereeing in his 80s. We thought we'd get him on. Rex Ward, welcome to the programme. Good good afternoon. It's lovely to have you on, Rex. Lovely to be here. You are the father of the manager of the Hurricanes team, so clearly rugby is in the family for you? Uh, for, for Tony, it is the the youngest son has taken a different course in, in management. He's a CEO in Auckland. Mm. How long have you been refereeing, Rex? Uh, Forty-one years now. How did how did you get into it? Um, I started off coaching schoolboy rugby for seven years. Then I went into associate refereeing for three years. And in 1980, at the age of 40, I decided to take up full-time refereeing. 
Mm, wonderful, isn't it, Ali? You know, the, the longevity here of Rex's uh, wonderful refereeing career. Absolutely. My father-in-law was the patron of the Christchurch rugby team here in, or club here in Christchurch and used to sit up on the balcony, a bit like the Pope. Uh, yeah. he's, he's not with us any longer. But, um, yeah, so there's a very long um, relationship with my husband's side of the family with the club, and I think it's fantastic. Well done, Rex. Awesome. Yeah, I'm very happy with it as well. Mm. Rex, when you're at a party and someone asks you what your job is <laughs> and, and you say you're a referee, do they try and get you to sort out disputes at the party? Uh, no, they don't. No, no. We have a few debates over a few beers, but no, nothing like that. What, what keeps you refereeing, Rex? What, what, what do you love about it? Well, I think after so long, it's probably in my DNA a bit. And um, it's very enjoyable and challenging, and it doesn't matter whether you're doing under-13s or president's grade, they're so different and so different challenging, particularly now with safety as the main aspect with the game now. You've got to be very careful with the tackles. And like uh, two weeks ago, I yellow-carded two 13-year-old players for high tackles. So you've got to be careful with, with safety these days. But I enjoy it. I was really it, do. Do you get a, but much abuse? So we hear about mm. this a lot, don't we, about the sideline abuse? Surely no one would dare with you. Oh, um, yeah. Funnily enough, in the middle you don't hear too much. It's the best seat in the house. <laughs> but my wife has been on the sideline a few times and she's offered to... Uh, get them to come along to the referees meeting on Monday nights because they know so much about the game. Good on her. Good on her. Rex, what do you, what do, you do, like, refereeing at your age in Wellington, <laughs> which is one of the harshest cities to play outdoor winter sport in, uh, like, what do, you, what do you do after a match? Like, and after the beers, when you get home, so just properly unwind. <sighs> just go out for a cup of coffee with my wife. Mm. Oh, you're a good man. But I have a shower first, of course. Because yes. It's so cold. And I also referee with an undershirt on because it gets a bit cold in the middle as well. All the secrets. So finally, Rex, to those maybe younger folk who want to get into refereeing, what would you say to them? Well, I was just thinking about that a while ago, and I think all I can sum it up by saying is that for those who are getting older, 80 is probably the new 60. So don't give up. Just keep on going. Rex Ward, love having you on the program. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Bye. And that is uh, Wellington referee who is uh, still refereeing in his 80s. What that a could, legend. That could be us, eh? What an absolute legend. Yeah. I agree 100% with Ali Jones. I find it frustrating when people tell me to leave part of me at work. It's a personal difference. Not wrong, as she said. Uh, another one here. Remember, we are human beings, not human doings. You are, you, who you are is more important than what you do, Ali. But they're inextricably linked is my point. Yeah. Uh, 20 to 5, the panel, uh, NZ National. Culling deer, possums, goats, feral pigs and other invasive mammals could be could let established native forests recover to the point where they sucked in 15% of New Zealand's yearly greenhouse gas emissions, says a report from Forest and Bird. It shows that Kamahi Potocarp forests covering vast areas of wetland, Westland rather, is losing significant amounts of carbon. 
Well, that roughly balances out the climate benefit from other types of forests that are gaining carbon, such as regenerating Karnaka forest. And there's a reason why this significant carbon loss is happening. So to discuss that, key author of the report and former forest and bird chief conservation advisor Kevin Hackwell joins us. Kia ora, Kevin. Kia ora, Wallace. Hi, Ali and James. Hey. Yes, so these, these forests... They're losing significant amounts of carbon, these particular forests. What is the reason? Well, the reason is that the the Kamahi Potakart forests, which are, they make up 10% of all the native forests in New Zealand, um, the Kamahi component particularly in those forests is susceptible to browsing by deer, by goats, by possums, and by chamois, um, you know, down the, down the South Island there. And so they're getting hammered by these four introduced pests. And the sad reality, which we're, we've uh, shown in, in this report, is that those forests are just hemorrhaging carbon. Um, and if you add it all together, it's something like that particular forest alone is losing over 3 million tonnes of CO2 a year, which is equivalent to... Just to give it a, you know, put in perspective, that's about what we were emitting from pre-COVID, all our, all our domestic air travel. Um, Goodness me. 2018. Just to huge. put things in perspective, uh, I understand that New Zealand forests store around uh, 1.7 billion tonnes of carbon overall. That's quite a hefty number, isn't it? Oh, it is, and it's, and it's, it's, it's over six times what is stored in our uh, exotic pine forests. So when people think about storing carbon, they, you know, and they think about forests, they think about all the pine trees in New Zealand, but actually the native forests are, uh, have six times the amount of, of, of carbon in them than the pine forests do. Um, and so it, when you have those forests um, under threat from these pests, you're talking about a really big threat to the carbon storage that they would normally be doing. Ellie Jones? One question I have is, is there a way to utilise the deer, the possums and other pests either for their meat or for their fur? Well, it's interesting you ask that, Ali, because we know that we that we can make a big difference if we do reduce their numbers because remember when we were doing the, the helicopter deer hunting and culling and we we're selling the deer to 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 the um, to the Germans etc as as meat and we were also establishing the deer industry we were catching them live and putting them behind big fences you know around the country when that happened in that period back in the 70s and early 80s um, the forests recovered incredibly well all over New Zealand and what's happened is that that industry collapsed in terms of the selling the meat overseas, the wild meat overseas, and of course we now have all the deer farms are established, and they just they they buy and sell the deer between them. So, in the in the in the following three decades, we've watched deer, goats, and pig numbers just go through the roof, and the mm. forests are really suffering at the moment. Mm. James, can we can we eat possum? Oh, you can, but you can. the effort in do it, the effort in the effort in in trapping and killing them to actually um, eat them is mm. just not worth it. It really isn't. I mean, so all these ideas of yes, there is some value. Some people do get some value out of these animals, and that's fine. But the the size of the problem is so great that mm. that trying to solve the problem by thinking you can utilise the animals, all the animals, for those purposes doesn't work. Um, you may be able to get a little bit at the edge, that's fine, and, you know, good on anybody who does, but the reality is 
we're talking about, say, these forests on the West Coast. You know, they're on rugged country. Mm. Um, you know, there's no way that we're going to successfully um, do that again. Um, there aren't the markets. We just need to get in there and control them. That, that, that's commercial hunters. It's recreational hunters. Everybody needs to be doing their bit. Kevin, I'm just wondering, though, but in general, overall, our forests across Aotearoa are in balance, right? They suck in around the same amount of carbon dioxide as they release. So really, what's the issue? Well, no, the issue there is a good question, Wallace, because the issue is if we, if we didn't have them being munched through by all these introduced pests, they would be, on, on average, they'd be accumulating carbon. They'd be helping us and the climate. And, and this is it. So what we've right. got is a balance at the point that we have all these pests doing this amazing amount of damage. Get rid of those pests. And instead of being in balance, they would be actually um, busy absorbing more carbon. We would actually, they'd be do, helping us and the climate really well. And that's what they should be doing. And that's what we need to re- reinstate. Would some sort of television reality program called The Great Kiwi Shootout <laughs> maybe help motivate people? Uh, your ideas, uh, yeah. James, just, I mean, just firing. <laughs> and luckily, we, we, have a, we have a really active uh, recreational hunting sector. We just need to encourage them. But we also, the reality is they can't get to everywhere by any stretch. And we need to, the government is going to need to invest. We need to have the Department of Conservation, which manages a lot of these forests. They need to be doing it on a serious way, just like we're doing the predator-free. We need to be doing the, the pest-free. And we need to be encouraging the private landowners who have these forests or tussock grasslands or the wetlands we need them to be to be encouraged mm. to do the pest control. Very interesting report there. Thank you for coming on to talk mm. about it. That is a former forest and bird chief conservation advisor, Kevin Hackwell there. Um, so, yes, we're losing significant amounts of carbon in our, our Kamahi Potokab forest because of the... Uh, because of all the uh, the pests, stoats and such wise. Uh, now, um, a surprising amount of response actually regarding um, uh, how you define yourself um, uh, w- in your work or not. And here's a nice one uh, for you, for, for, for you um, uh, Ali. Trish and Shirley says, Ali does so well at what she does because of the person she is. She is so inspirational to so many people in Christchurch. Her personality allows her to be effective. So there you go. That's, that's one oh, that, that perhaps... Oh, that's lovely. Thank you. It's a nice little um, text here. But this one here is that I'm going to call the text of the afternoon, and here it is. <clears throat> I went from being a partner in a law firm to a stay-at-home dad. I now have a real appreciation for the way we unsee those who do not hold down work in quote-unquote recognised interesting areas. We do need to get more creative in how we interact with each other beyond work stories. So we might even come back to that topic later in uh, the week. James Lukise, Ali Jones with me this afternoon. Or thefts of of catalytic converters are on the rise in Canterbury with police saying they are being targeted because of the valuable metals they contain, reports Hannah McCallum and stuff. So what is causing the rise in interest in catalytic converters and indeed what are they? Susan Billsborough is the president and president of the New Zealand Association of Metal Recyclers. Susan, welcome to the program. Thank you Wallace, nice to be here. Good to have you on the panel and has your industry noticed this? Yes, it has. We haven't particularly at um, the business that I I work in, but it is very prevalent throughout the industry and certainly in Christchurch. 
Um, we're getting quite a few reports from the police about bulk stealings, either from new vehicles or, or older ones. Goodness, why, and why are they being targeted? Well, they are really valuable as a, as a scrap metal item. Obviously, nowhere near as valuable as, as they are to purchase new. But they're, they're basically part of your exhaust um, emission system. And uh, the, the, it has a, high, um, a, a basically a catalyst of very high-value metals, such as rhodium, palladium, and platinum in there. And that's really what creates the value. So that, that's, um, yeah, that's basically a coating on a ceramic and that helps to um, break down the exhaust fumes into something a little less toxic. So if you can take that little piece of steel, it's usually a stainless steel little bit on the exhaust, you then have got this honeycomb piece in the middle and the uh, valuable metals can be re-extracted from that. So they do, they do have a decent scrap value. And, um, and and that is the reason why most people steal. Heard about the Zelly? No, no, no. He was just asking, Wallace was just asking if I'd heard about it. No, I haven't. And I misread this when you sent it through. I thought it was a, um, what's the flux capacitor from Back to the Future? <laughs> so I read it and I thought, geez, people are stealing the flux capacitor. How's the DeLorean uh. going to get through? Um, but no, in all seriousness, no, I've heard this with regards to copper piping, yes. especially when a lot of the houses were demolished in Christchurch after the earthquakes and, and some of those um, some of those bits and pieces were taken for the value of the metal. But I've not heard it in these, no. Mm. James? I'm, I'm, I'm generally uh, curious. Are, the, are these in all cars? They are in most. Um, more modern vehicles, particularly. It needs unleaded petrol to work most effectively, so you don't okay. tend to find them a lot in diesel, although some diesel work have, have a slightly different version of them. So they should be in most um, modern cars. Because I'm just thinking of um, our listeners who uh, perhaps uh, don't have access to, you know, um, security lights or, um, you know, ways to, to protect their cars. Is, is there anything that they can do if they're concerned about... You know, it's it's a very specific. Yeah, it is a very specific item. Obviously, um, the further off the ground your car is, the easier it's going to be to oh. slide underneath and and um, cut it off. So it just needs a basic cutting tool to cut through it. Um, but yeah, I, I can't imagine. I, just sort of a bit astounded at what levels people will go it's to. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, so I guess the mm. message is, or what is the message, to keep your car low? No, 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 just joking. Um, <laughs> just to... <laughs> um, as low as you can. Yeah, just to be just to be mindful that it can be stolen, I guess, and, uh, it, yeah, look after your car. Can. I guess take precautions, I guess. It's, yeah. I mean, that's a handy bit of information that people like to be able to get it and slide under. So I guess if you do yeah. park your car outside or just... I don't know, get a cat, um, some sort of baby monitor, MacGyver your way out of the situation in New Zealand. <laughs> Susan Billsborough, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Uh, Susan's the president of the New Zealand Association of Metal Recyclers. Now, just a couple more uh, pieces of email feedback for you because there's been so much this afternoon, uh, particularly around what we do. <clears throat> I cannot believe the difficulty Wallace has of comprehending that some individuals are actually able to happily identify themselves with their work because they are emotionally and intellectually integrated human beings. <laughs>
Yeah, get him. Rare get him. these days, I know, when so many people have the mentality of mercenaries or they subscribe to some notion that there's work and then there's life. What Ali has is integrity. So thank you for that. Uh, another one here. I is it from my sister? I think it's well, from Well, I don't know. Who is it from? But um, <laughs> I, I, hear, I hear you. I hear you. Uh, another one here. A lot of what I do is dutiful. I support my husband, children, and family, and I do a lot of unrewarding dog work, this person writes. I would like to think that I don't have to be inextricably linked to all the work I do most of the time. It doesn't define me. I intentionally give myself of myself so that others can do their work. I'm a great writer. I'm funny. I'm warm. I'm a generous person. And I'm a huge voluntary supporter of the arts and mental health in our community. Thank you for those. I appreciate it. Now, there are new puppets of four politicians who were revealed at the Backbenchers pub in Wellington last night. The latex figures depict a new version of Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and for the first time puppets of the ACT leader David Seymour, National Party leader Judith Collins and Green MP Chloe Swarbrick. The Judith Collins puppet features, for example, a raised eyebrow and if you look closely there appears to be blood on her hands. I didn't know that. Uh, While Chloe Swarbrick has a bow and arrow and a cannabis badge she said she she was lucky that it wasn't a bong, but with us now is <laughs> the creator of the puppets, Bryce Curtis. Kia ora, Bryce. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm very well. Look, how far do you go back with these puppets? Um, oh, I go back uh, a wee while. I um, uh, originally uh, got to know Richard Taylor back in uh, 92, 1992 when they, he was working on Brain Dead. This is Sir uh, Richard Taylor and, from Lord of the Rings, this is from Weta. Yep. Yep, yeah. Sir, Sir Richard Taylor, Good. and uh, we, we kind of kept in touch. And then uh, I think it was um, back when they were doing uh, The Frighteners uh, and he was working on Xenia and he didn't have time to do any more puppets. So he, he kindly passed the job of doing the first my first one, which was Jenny Shipley. Gosh. So um, I've been doing them for uh, the last 24 years. 24 years for the backbench at Tavern. Yes, yes, it's making me feel very old. So, <laughs> what what has been what have been a couple of the challenging puppets to do over that time? Challenging? Uh, the, well, they're all challenging in yeah. their own right. It's it's always um, about trying to get that likeness, and, yes. and obviously Jenny was my first one, so there was a, a certain amount of trepidation and and trying to get something that uh, that not only looked like her, but but you know appealed to the public. So, um, but 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 each of them had their own challenges, I guess. Um, yeah, do you have a favourite? Stands out. Uh, do I have a favourite? Um, actually, uh, doing the, the new ones this time round, um, because I sort of had a bit more time to, to, to do them. Generally, it's always under a time pressure. But um, I actually really enjoyed doing Judith Collins. She was because uh, she's got quite a, a distinct face, and, and of course, there's that iconic eyebrow, which uh, was was always a given that that was going to feature as one of her um, her looks. So. Um, yeah, you know. God, I really I, hope someone hasn't just tuned in to hear you say, I really enjoyed doing Judith Collins. <laughs> it's, it's just it's okay. almost as good as the, uh, what was the Moray joke with Jesse just before we came on? Sorry, I had to say it's it. All people context. were thinking it. Yeah, people it's all, were thinking it. It's all context, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> yeah, have you been to the pub? Have you been to this pub, Ellie? Yes, I have. I remember the first time I went there and I felt like I was in Disneyland. I felt like I'd gone to one of those places that had been talked about and I'd seen pictures of it. And I walked in and just looked. And it wasn't that long ago. It probably would have been four or five years ago. Just open mouth. I think they are absolutely fantastic. fantastic My favourite, Winston Peters.
Yes. Yes, Winston's a good. He's a, he's yep. been there for a long time. He's had a, had uh, three costume changes, <laughs> and we uh, we we redressed him for this opening. He's he's now wearing a a smoking jacket in his pajamas with. Does, uh, does he have uh, baubles of power around his neck? <laughs> but James, then now it looks like he might be going. He's going to maybe make a comeback. So who knows? James, we, James, you know the pub, of course. Uh, yes, yes, I, I've I've been illicit there many a night. Um, I'm I'm curious. Do the politicians know what you look like? What I look like? What Generally you look not. Like. I I um I did actually make I I, I usually uh, stick to the background. But last night I did actually make the effort to uh, go and speak with each of them uh, prior to. And uh, just sort of uh, prepare myself mentally and them for what was about the, about to be revealed. So, but they were all very nice. And uh, yes, Judith in particular was very complimentary after her one was unveiled. So, what did she but, say? Uh, um, uh, she she said she loved it, and she was actually uh, calling. You didn't see it on the news, but she was calling out for me. She was Bryce, Bryce, where this is this is fantastic. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, a, a sigh of relief on my part. You must be very proud of them. Be, just be, be honest, be honest. Is there oh. a politician through history that did not like the work that you put up? Um, I I. Can't recall there being one. Uh, I know historically before my time that there was maybe a couple of ones that who, who uh, they were not very happy because they used to because um, the original puppets made by Richard and uh, Tanya for the the, the um, um, Public Eye TV series were the ones that were in there originally, uh, and they used to just redress them some of them, uh, and I believe that they may have used a Susan Devoy puppet then became a, a Nandor. Tandros. Goodness, we'll leave it there, Bryce. (laughs) We'll leave it there. What a plot twist to finish on. (laughs) (laughs) Thought that. James McKeese, Ali Jones, thank you for your time. I'm back tomorrow.